citizens create networks of trust. And in a sense, all problem solving has to be local. You can create national, you can create national, subnational, regional infrastructure, but the ultimate application of the infrastructure to a local problem has to be driven by local proximate citizens. Hi, I'm Dagan John, and I'm the CEO at the Rohini Nilakini Philanthropies Foundation. You are listening to the Understanding the Future podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Puneet Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities at the National Institute of Urban Affairs and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future podcast. I have been working and studying in the field of sustainability and climate change for more than 8 years and I have realized that I have a lot of questions on how we can build cities in India that are more climate focused. With Understanding the Future podcast, I interact with experts, entrepreneurs and government officials to understand what it takes to bring all the different solutions to the ground, as well as how can systemic changes be developed on ground. We will further anchor all the topics being discussed with different skill sets required. This will help us understand the future of cities and future of work in Indian context. If you are tuning in for the first time, do check out our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the Climate Practitioners India Network, a members-led solutions-oriented platform for climate practitioners across India. And join it through the show note. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future. I am your host, Puneet Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities. And today, we have with us Gautam John. He is the CEO of Rohini Nirupani Philanthropy Foundation. And today, he will help us understand the topic of role of citizens in cities. Welcome to the show, Gautam. Thank you, Puneet. It's a real pleasure being here. I followed your work and the work of NIUA with great interest. With a focus on cities and citizens, and uh, I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. Yeah, I'm also pretty excited about this topic because I think till now we have always engaged with everyone from the lines of environment, the industries, to every stakeholder head. Uh, but this is, I think, after one topic uh, that we did on how citizens can help in policy development, this is one topic I feel is very important from the citizens' perspective that what are citizens? What is the role of citizens in urban context? I think that's the first question that uh, we can pick up to even understand what are we trying to unfold over here. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think um, um, from our own perspective, we've kind of identified the perspective of a citizen as being distinct and different from that of being a consumer um, or of being a subject. In particular, we see that there are you know, multiple pathways in which a citizen's identity expresses itself. Um, and four of them that come to mind are around volunteering, that citizens volunteer leading to moving up the engagement, of la- engagement ladder, um, that empowered citizens in communities make claims, um, such as the RTE, the right to food. Um, and second, thirdly, around co-creation. Citizens tend to co-create 
we see a huge diversity of organizations that work in citizen-led ways of local problem solving and co-creation. Uh, and the fourth one, of course, which I think is our most obvious identity, is really around um, electoral participation. Um, and I think electoral participation has been the defining identity, but we think there's a lot more, and you know, there are a lot more facets of citizenship which are uh, worth articulating. In particular, the role of um, citizens as actors of civic engagement. So yeah, so that's how we see uh, how, how we see a citizen as being distinct from um, you know, consumer of the market or the subject of the state. That's, that's quite interesting because I think every time whenever we come down to the topic of citizen, it's always more on the lines of electoral participation, which kind of uh, takes away all other things. And if you have to come on it, uh, whatever, so I think empowering citizens is one of the most uh, defining things that anyone can do. But what are the different sectors that are required to be empowered for citizens to be empowered? Because I'm guessing we directly can't just empower them. Um, great question. And I think it's also worth talking a little bit about the fact that the landscape of civic engagement and active citizenship is tricky and complex. Um, it's not black or white, right? I think um, active and engaged citizens are a dynamic group. Um, geographically, it, it is ubiquitous. Um, it's not just around basic civil duties. It can be even complex problem solving. It is um, non-binary. Uh, sometimes it doesn't even require a direct interface with government. Um, and active citizenship and civic engagement exists as part of a, how to say, a multi-directional and multi-stakeholder fluid universe. So in, in, in that sense, it's not necessarily the easiest to, to classify and put into a box. But I think in terms of enabling it and creating pathways for implementation, we, we have this framework um, that we came up with a research partner of ours. Um, it's around uh, creating awareness, facilitating connection, building capacity, and uh, driving action. Um, that's where we come from, and that's what we believe um, the, you know, the role of the enabling, the enabling systems around creating active and Indian citizens are. Just to re reiterate, it's creating awareness, facilitating connection, building capacity, and driving awareness. That's solid. I think these words, while uh, they are just one word, but when we put them across together, they're pretty solid in taking it from making sure that the empowerment can take place. Uh, if you can maybe give example of the kind of uh, funds that you have given out to the uh, different organizations and how they are helping us do it, maybe it will also help uh, our audience understand it in a better context of how will yes. they be exactly empowered on these things. Yes. Um, so in the creating awareness space, you know, organizations that work over here work along one of three dimensions, either as knowledge creators, um, as amplifiers of knowledge, or as uh, or as disseminators. So, for example, in the knowledge creator space, there are amazing organizations like uh, Pukar um, that, uh, you know, are very grounded in proximate um, and create evidence and frameworks for the space. There are amplifier organizations such as... Uh, um, Goonj, um, they are grassroots organizations, they amplify citizen voices on the ground, um, and they help surface and amplify, you know, very local grassroots issues, as well as providing a platform uh, to locally solve. 
Um, and last one, there are organizations like that work on the dissemination framework, amazing organizations like Haqtarshak that provide information on government schemes, public issues, um, and in particular where government engagement already exists, it's the connection and the navigating of the systems and processes that these organizations help. Um, they, organizations that work in the dissemination space tend to work as implementers as well. Uh, so that's really around the creating awareness uh, uh, part of the framework. The second one was around facilitating connection, and I'm happy to go into that and the other ones around building capacity and driving action too. No, absolutely. I, I'd be happy to know more about those as well. So, you know, um, I think in the facilitating connection, the biggest one that we have seen is um, usually organizations that help facilitate the citizen government interface, right? Uh, whether it's Janagrahan Praja, whether it's Haktarshak, whether it's Siris, which is this amazing young organization that has been working to expand the ambit and diversity of participants, uh, engaging with public pre-legislated public consultation. So a lot of organizations work in the citizen government space, but I really think that the, the, the true uh, difference between um, you know, traditional work on engagement and civic engagement uh, work in particular is around organizations that facilitate citizen-citizen engagement. Um, and there are a range of organizations, usually very local to a geography, uh, at best a city, uh, that facilitate, uh, facilitate spaces for citizens to come together um, to locally problem solve, uh, to brainstorm. There's a wide range of it. Some organizations, for example, like Jatandraha, work at the citizen government, but also the citizen-citizen level. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the facilitating connection bit. The yeah. third one was around building capacity. capacity. Um, yeah, um, and I think in particular, this is one that we're very familiar with, um, you and I. So whether it's leadership development, um, you know, there are so many organizations working on leadership development in, 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 in space. But the important one is also around organizations building capacity for good governance. Um, there's you, I mean, you know, eGov and the digit and it's urban stack. So there's all of, all of that in the capacity and capacity on both sides, right? Capacity on the side of civic actors to engage, but also capacity on the government side to be able to create those interfaces for engagement, um, at the level of uh, technology, but also at the level of intent. Yeah. Um, and the last one is really, sorry. No, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and I was saying the last one is really around uh, driving action. Um, so everyone from EGAP um, who are now doing more work on the citizen engagement side, organizations like CITIS that engage with the government, but are also creating a wide uh, network of uh, citizen and civic actors to respond to public consultations. That's the last one on the actual problem solving, uh, problem solving bit. So you create the awareness, you facilitate the connection, you create capacity on both sides, and then drive action uh, through a civic engagement framework. So, so that's broadly um, our um, understanding. That's pretty interesting to see as well that uh, now India, being one of the key points over here, has quite a lot of such organizations coming up and facilitating so many different actions. Now, but in India, generally, when we have looked at it, uh, the role of citizens and especially from the government perspective, it's more of a beneficiary or directly whenever we are talking about any kind of budgets or anything of that, what are citizens getting out of it? Uh, how can we make sure that they are not just the beneficiaries, but they are the participating people 
to develop those cities, at least uh, not from the country perspective, but if we are coming down from the city perspective, uh, how how can that be defined as uh, for the citizens? Great question. Um, I think perhaps it's worth going back a little bit in time before we come to the shaisen. Um, in in Bangalore, for example, um, you know, Bangalore is a city that hundreds of years ago. Um, the, the, the erstwhile rulers built a network of tanks and lakes and connected them by canals with the recognition that Bangalore was on a plateau um, and uh, we didn't have natural water sources. Therefore, we need to create these uh, facilities. But the amazing bit was that these facilities were treated as common pool resources and managed by communities. Uh, so, in a sense, community engagement and civic engagement isn't new in India, right? Um, if you go to if you go to Rajasthan and look at how traditional communities manage their water, um, none of these are new. These are not government driven. These have been managed by communities um, and have, at some level, um, uh, both endured and proven the tragedy of the commons argument wrong. I mean, Eleanor Ostrom's work on the management of common pool resources is very much around civic governance, um, community ownership. It all exists. So, to that extent, none of these ideas are particularly new in India because. We have managed our water, our forests uh, through uh, proximate community and community-driven models for a very, very long time. Um, some, some, some of the challenges we see now is the disengagement of citizens and communities with their with, with their surroundings. Um, so to go back, you know, just to re- re-articulate your question through that framework that they're not just beneficiaries but are participants. I think if we want to build resilient cities. Um, if we want to build policies and solutions uh, which are anchored in resilience and are relevant and meaningful to local communities, we need to include citizens as co-creators, not just passive consumers. Um, ultimately, citizens are the ones uh, who you know are closest to a problem and would perhaps have the best articulation of the cultural and historical context in which each local problem evolves in. Um, citizens, um, citizens create networks of trust, and in a sense, all problem solving has to be local. You can create national, you can create national, subnational, regional infrastructure, but the ultimate application of the infrastructure to a local problem has to be driven by local proximate citizens. Um, so to that, uh, to, so to the question, I think the case is the, the case is really one driven by proximity and resilience. Um, because if resilience is driven by proximate networks of trust being enabled to solve local problems, the only way to do that is through citizen and civic engagement. Um, so how do, I'm making the case of why we should do it. Um, I think we talked a little bit about um, how we should do it as well through the four-led framework. Um, but to me, you know, just given, given the fact that um, all of our challenges today, whether it's Climate change, natural disasters, uh, you know, um, public health challenges. Um, there's there's no single way to respond to them, but to create local networks of trust and civic actors who are willing to work at local level, leveraging natural, le- le- leveraging public infrastructure. Um, so yeah, um, I, I don't actually know another way that this will happen, and we live in a moment in time. Where technology allows for rapid dissemination of information and mobilization, um, individual acts of charity in this country are the highest today. Yeah, 
government subsidy. 10 million people gave it up, right? Early 2016. During the pandemic, um, we witnessed volunteering. So to bring all of this latent energy of the citizens of India together uh, to build more uh, resilient and robust urban settlements means that we will have to look at citizens as uh, not just beneficiaries, but co-creators of our local governance and local public service. Well, absolutely. I, I think I would like to come to co-creation as well. But before we do that, I think one of the things that we did mention was about the maybe management of things, especially across length and width of India, I guess, as well, because that has been there always. But do you think that what is the challenge that has now come? And maybe one of the challenges that I can foresee uh, over here is the increasing population as well as the migration making the cities bigger and the uh, amplification of uh, challenges just happened there or much more. But what are some of the other challenges do you see because of this happening? Good question. Um, and uh, I think you know, there are, how to say, global headwinds we're all working with, right? Um, I think there's a there's a dichotomy in terms of the levels of trust that Samaj, Sarkar and Bajan have with each other, uh, not just in India, but globally. I mean, the, the level of distrust with uh, big, big technology platform players, uh, the level of uh, distrust between markets and market interest and community interest. There's so many different kinds of breakdowns of trust between the large institutions on which our society rests. Um, there's also you know, the, the headwinds that we face of reducing the diversity of our societies into binaries. So it's very hard to create local problems when we see things in black and white alone and not in the shades of grey that they all occur in. Um, and the third one, which definitely has positives but also downsides, is this shifting sands of technology, right? Uh, the technology is amplifying some bits, is retarding certain bits. It's removing friction in some places. So there's a lot of opportunity, but it's very unstable ground to build on. Um, so, so there are several headwinds that um, are, are, are challenging to navigate, but I have no doubt that we will um, and, and find new ways to land this work in ways that uh, are meaningful to all participants. Yeah, absolutely. I think for, uh, we as a country would also have to find this, especially when we are such a young country, with so many young people everywhere, with so much of energy out there. And I think this is the age where co-creation can be at its best because everyone's dreaming up with ideas. Everyone has enough potential in India as well to build up whatever new kind of systems, technologies, processes that we need to build up. Uh, so when we are talking about co-creation with citizens, what are the different mm -hmm. things that at least the government or an administration body can think of for co-creation. What other things can be done? How can they be done? Great question, and it's something that you know we spend some time uh, thinking about. So, I think firstly we must acknowledge the fact that the structural framework for governing modern India is in many ways based on the tenets of open government, transparency, participation, etc. Right? These uh, these are definitely drivers. But it's all, just to rewind a little again, and I'm sorry, I like looking back to look forward. Yeah. India has had a rich legacy of open, local, and participatory government. The roots of democratic decentralization can be traced back to like the ancient India when republics existed, um, which were essentially areas, I think, without kings. 
Uh, so, for example, the Vajian um, Confederacy in Vaishali around 600 BC in the times of the Buddha, um, there have been many recurring evidence of self-contained and self-governed village republics in India. I think Sir Charles Metcalf, who was one of the um, who was the acting governor general in India in 1830, wrote that these village communities are little republics having nearly everything they want within themselves and are almost independent of foreign nations. Uh, so, to that extent, you know, it's a reiteration of things that are both ancient and modern in India. Um, and the key, key frameworks and interventions that the government uh, can use to drive public participation and civic engagement in India is really local decentralized governance, um, both around participation and accountability. Open data for sure, um, open data for uh, information, open data for information, open APIs and SDKs to build on top of uh, public digital infrastructure. Um, e-governance is one way in which it's expressed. Uh, but also, I think, you know, other new and innovative tools that have been used in the past and are still valid, valuable, such as participatory budgeting, community scorecards, social audits, citizen charters. None of these are new, but there's an opportunity to bring it all together in a, in a bundle that uh, will allow you know, for greater and more vibrant and diverse civic engagement. Absolutely. Uh, but do you think this becomes more of a challenge because of the increasing population and then managing it at what level or city level? It's a good question, but I do believe that this is perhaps something that technology can help intermediate, right? I mean, in, in general, what we've struggled with is if you want to do something to cater to diversity, you have to do it at very small scale. But if you want to do something at great scale, you have to reduce diversity. But what technology allows us to do is to build diversity at scale. Indeed, that diversity at scale is the solution to most of our problems um, and not the challenge. Um, so, yeah, um, I, 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 not for a moment do I say that our challenges uh, are not large. But I do believe that in dealing with our large challenges at scale, we don't have to reduce diversity. We can use technology as a way to embrace and amplify the diversity of uh, uh, actors and agencies within within the Can you maybe give an example of such a technology which has helped us in, uh, with the diversity in place as well? Uh, just take language, right? Language barriers in India. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have what a constitutionally mandated list of 26, 26 languages, and that is just one list. I mean, the number of languages in India is limited. Yeah. And now, you know, over the last few years, there's been so much work that's been done on automating language. Um, there's work, there's work at the new AI center that uh, part of our foundation funded in at IIT Madras um, on making languages interoperable using machine learning and languages tools. Um, there's so many of these pieces that have that, that you know that will essentially make it easier to cater to the diversity of our country without reducing without reducing the uniqueness of any of it. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, uh, I, I, there are many cases in which technology will allow us to cater to diversity without start compromising on scale. I think this is definitely one of those cases. I, I do agree. I do agree, and I think a lot of the push has also been given in government agencies, and making sure that the, uh, more and more multilingual software also come into picture. All this thing, I guess, uh, that's uh, I was just talking to uh, Dr. Chintan about the same uh, in two episodes back, and I do absolutely agree that it's it's a pretty interesting space. And when we are talking about now 
from the citizens' perspective, we have seen that okay, what are things that they are not just the uh, beneficiaries, but they also give it back. When we are now talking about the urban local bodies or administration in place, uh, we have already mentioned at the places that the government and open data can help in developing such kind of frameworks. Uh, but are there any kind of uh, specific frameworks that have been developed which are currently being used? How are they being used to make sure that citizens can be facilitated to co-create or get empowered or can help in volunteering in London, uh, bringing it back uh, so that there is a better chance of, uh, you know, that citizen uh, engagement happening on the uh, fair question, and I think it's important to uh, acknowledge acknowledge the fact that you know, there are structural challenges around keeping sustained civic participation and engagement. On the side side of the citizens' abilities and willingness, there's a limited willingness to participate in local problem solving. Uh, some people might see it as difficult and unnecessary. There's where they do want to engage. There's a lack of understanding on how to engage. Um, when you're willing to engage, there's a difficulty in relating actions to outcomes. And uh, when even when you're willing to take that risk, there's a perceived ambivalence uh, and challenges of trust building. Um, to acknowledge on the on the, the Sarkar side as well, there are definitely challenges. I think government capacity is limited. Um, and as a and, and the thing that Sarkar has to do is to balance efficiency with consensus building. And ultimately, progress is needed as well. Um, so. This is not to state that everything is easy. There are trade-offs as with anything. Um, there are, uh, you know, uh, there's a calculus and a rubric within which these decisions are made. Are made. But I think in talking about them, then we can think differently about them. Um, so yeah, um, for us to acknowledge the fact that there are several steps that have been taken on the side of Sarkar, whether it's work on opening up data sets, opening up APIs, opening up public building public digital infrastructure on the side of you know, citizen and civic actors in, in encouraging act participation, in encouraging uh, and supporting engagement um, in building the long-term muscle for translating actions to outcomes. So it exists, uh, but it, it's a constant process. I mean, resilient ecosystems aren't built in a day. They take, they take a while to, they, they take a while to mature. But once they mature, the beauty, beauty of a resilient ecosystem is that they're self-generating and self-creating. Self and self-directed. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, resilience is at the core of it uh, for sure. Because from when we look at it as well, uh, we come more from the climate center, and for us, resilience is more on the lines of how we deal with disasters. I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that's the part that we that, that we should talk more about. That um, an engaged uh, an engaged samaj, one that participates in uh, highly incident acting actions. You know, builds their local networks of trust and who creates local problems and governance is, um, is, 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 is a good thing. A high civic level of civic engagement leads to a better society for all of us. I mean, there's enough research that finds that active citizens, um, enjoy better mental and physical health and higher levels of confidence and optimism. That networks of trust and horizontal connection created by engaging as a engaged and active Samaj Enable the development of how to say anticipatory, absorptive, adaptive, and transformative capacities that drive resilience for um, our urban communities and for communities everywhere. And that active citizenship improves governance, builds bridges of trust between Samaj Sarkar and Bazaar. Absolutely, absolutely. I do agree with that as well. 
And uh, coming to then the part of uh, uh, bazaar, I think bazaar is something that's very important, especially from the city's perspective, because somewhere that's the focal point where everyone's trying to come here as well. Let's say Samaj or Sarkar, they're building upon it as well. Now, somewhere it's also still talked about that maybe more decentralization of bazaar especially uh, will help us in making sure that the resources are utilized in the most optimal fashion. Uh, what is your take on it? Can that be optimized in a, on its own way or it, we will have to go with wherever the bazaars are for me? So no, so I think, you know, the bazaar has a self-interest in maintaining an equitable balance with uh, Sarkar and Samaj, right? Um, ultimately, a resilient society is um, also, in some sense, quote unquote, profitable. Um, because if you have, uh, if, if societies are resilient, they have, are resilient, they have the ability to persevere even in the face of challenges as opposed to collapsing. Uh, so, a bazaar, um, the bazaar does have an interest in it as well. And I think it's important to remember that all of us are citizens, whether whether we are uh, CEOs of Bazaar or leaders in the Sarkar, we ultimately all go home and we are members of the Samaj. Um, so we are we are all citizens first. So there's no taking that away. So I, I do believe the Bazaar is definitely responsive. Uh, and also remember that there are many other influencing factors for the Bazaar. Um, there are changes in values held by employees and pulling up, pulling bazaar players to being good corporate citizens. Customers are expecting more of uh, market actors, right? They expect them to be good corporate citizens as well. Um, young, younger, uh, younger consumers and, uh, and, and citizens expect, uh, from, you know, corporate citizens to have very high, you know, how to say, long-term value creation norms. Um, there's triple bottom line ESG, there's all of this coming into space. So I do believe that uh, Bazaar is very, very well aligned with this as well. Uh, A, because those are the forces that are influencing them. But B, because and you know, I would love for the listeners of this podcast to take this away. Irrespective of the hat we wear during the day, when we go home, we are, we are all citizens. Uh, we're all members of this much. Um, and there's no denying that. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I do agree over there. And I think that is where, uh, somewhere, I, I think I'd also like to bring the other question that we always do is, now, this is a complex space in itself. It's uh, bringing citizens in the center of everything. So what are the different skill sets required over here to be able to make sure that you're volunteering to empowering and co-creation and facilitate to a better elect, uh, electoral participation? You know, I might actually think that it's the other way around. I think in India, that electoral participation is not too bad at all, right? Um, but we really want people to show up between elections as well. Um, and I think that's the real muscle that we need to build. Um, elections are important. They give rise to our collective preferences. They hold, um, you know, they hold parties to account. And those are really, really important things. But there's work to be done between those five years as well. Um, and that work is really of us, uh, you know, training that public space of local problem solving. Um, and will, and doing that will definitely drive better uh, electoral participation as well. So in a sense, it's a cycle. I think we don't do too badly in electoral participation, but I think we need to recognize the work that needs to be done between electoral cycles. 
and doing the work of local problem solving and collective co-creation um, is will, will lead us to be more engaged with our cities, which will hopefully drive us to demand greater accountability from everyone and and show up more and more on the electoral side as well. No, absolutely. I think, uh, <coughs> that the, the in-between work, I think, is uh, one of the most important assets that anyone can. And everyone also wants to see that because until and unless that is there, now at least the younger generation is more keen on that. Okay, what's coming back to us with the whole electorate and something over there? So, uh, if someone wants to work in this field, what are the different, so from the future of work perspective, uh, what are the different kinds of skill sets that someone should have to be able to lead this kind of citizen uh, movement or empowerment? I think I think there are. If there was one, um, how to it say, can be multiple. One, yeah. If there was one in particular, I think it's for for people to recognize that we can only sustainably resolve our challenges if we co-own problem solving for our communities. Right. Um, that's 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 the big mental shift that needs to happen. But once that happens, I think everyone has a role to play. Whether you write code, whether you can design, all of that is the work that's required to bring communities together. If there's a muscle, a societal muscle we need to build, um, it's the muscle of facilitation. Yeah. I think we often um, talk about uh, co-creation, community problem solving, but don't often recognize that not everybody wants the same thing. Yeah. Um, so facilitating diverse groups of people to resolve local problems is not necessarily the easiest piece of work. It can be very high friction. Um, and building a societal muscle to facilitate, uh, to create dialogic methods whereby we can not just work on our public positions, but also on our shared interests so that we can build towards beautiful shared futures um, at the level of individuals, at the level of communities, at the level of cities, and at the level of the nation state um, are, are vital. Um, so, Perhaps the best answer is it's a new kind of leadership. The technical skills will always be important. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and anything you think that we are missing out on uh, in this whole conversation? Because I think, I'm sure we have covered quite a lot of it, but I'm not sure if you are missing out on any parts that you would like to cover. No, I have to say that um, your uh, questions were really, really uh, holistic. It covered the entire arc of the work that uh, we've been talking about. Um, I, I do believe that you know, there's, there's a point on culture as well, um, but whether um, civic engagement and policy development can facilitate um, this work at city level while including its cultural context. Um, and I think for me, the important point to hold over there is that the culture is held by the citizens, um, it's diverse, and that the only way we can maintain it is by putting communities and citizens at the center of this. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the cultural aspect we can't forget and I think that's an yeah. important thing, especially when we have uh, in a diverse country like India, that will be at its core always to ensure that uh, better adoption of anything can take place. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it was uh, an absolute fun talking to you and understand this in so much of insight and so much of compact format. Uh, thank you so much for your time and the knowledge that you have shared. It was very helpful to me.
Puneet, thank you. Um, Puneet, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the questions. It's not often that we get to um, think a little bit about our work critically and see where it lands. Uh, this was a great conversation. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on all social media channels. For more details about the Climate Center for Cities and registration on Climate Practitioners India Network, click on the link in the show notes. The episode is conceptualized and produced by Punit Gandhi. A big thank you to the whole team at C-Cube and NIUA for supporting the development of the podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.